Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. Who are you? And I'm Aliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we were just debating. We're going to bring the audience behind the curtain. We're going to pierce the veil. And we we're t- talking about whether or not the YouTube video that we record of this, that, of course, you can always find linked in our newsletter, Hi El Wretches, which I'm sure you all subscribe to, whether or not the video is worth it. And you're feeling you're not you're not feeling it. No, you don't want to persist with the video. No. Well, you should maybe she did not persist. <laughs> she did not persist. Well, I would maybe tell us, maybe tell us, maybe either start watching it and show us through the numbers or write us at where do they write us? Wretches yep. at nebulous dot com. That's wretches at nebulous dot com. I don't. First of all. I don't like the video because I like to just have bad posture and come in workout attire and I feel, you know, pressure. You pressure. think you th- and you, and you look very smart today for people who are not watching the stream. It's a it's a Well, I I don't do that because I feel It's a blue it's a, you're working in a, a blue video. palette and it has a very bushwood bushwood meets the upper east side energy that I think is working for you. Okay. So, and then every time we get our little promotional clip. My face is contorted. It, the opening the thumbnail, frame. The thumbnail, the thumbnail is so good. The thumbnail every is so week, good. My face is contorted in some ridiculous. It's good. You know, it's, it's the it's content absurd. that I'm here it's for. It's absurd. So I'm glad you enjoy it. Maybe it's worth it then. It's totally. The, you, the, the looks of disdain that Colin has been able to capture for the thumbnails are potent and wonderful. And I, for one, celebrate them. Okay. Chris, I for one watched the CNN town hall last night. Is Did it you? time? Is it time for the front? It's the time front for page? the front page. Heck yeah! Sorry, did I just plow right through? I'm so I'm, so task oriented. I just I'm for plowing here. This is good. Let okay. us plow. I did watch last night. Okay. Yes. And uh, what is there to say? You CNN. know, he's he's not interviewable. Amen. And. It was a foolish thing to do, and I felt sort of bad for Caitlin Collins. I, I think if I were her, I wouldn't have done it because she was really put in a no-win situation. But he he's not an interviewable guy That's using correct. the traditional methods. Or of, even using a non-traditional method. Of he's, media interviewing. Yeah. I mean, the thing that struck me was she obviously went in trying to fact-check him on various things and she would stop him and say that's not the case no that didn't happen but he says things that are not true so frequently that it's not good television to stop him every right. three seconds and get into you know tit for tat debate with him on every single one of these things and so you you end up in this no win situation and then he has a certain charm and charisma and humor whereby he and the audience was on his side. Right. If you that have a laugh track, thing. it really helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was it was a disaster. I have been part of producing town halls with various candidates, Republicans and Democrats. The town hall setting is more attractive for the interviewee because you're getting instead of just being sitting down where the questioner can go after you. You have an audience there where theoretically the idea of the town hall is this isn't about me, the interviewer. It's about these these voters. I don't know the mechanism by which CNN chose that audience, but it was a it was a bad method because it was clearly not an undecided kind of audience. No, no, it was it was Republican primary voters. Well, but not undecided Republican, not all undecided Republican primary voters, including one of the questioners who posited in his question, 
his his support for Trump. What are you going to do to stop Ron DeSantis? Basically, it was an anti DeSantis. Yeah, sorry, I I didn't mean to say undecided. It was Republican primary voters yeah, yeah, in yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, I'm saying that's the thing is they weren't. It'd be fine if they were Republican primary voters, but they were. It, it was a pro Trump. There was a lot of pro Trump energy in the hall, and he had a good laugh track. So that puts him in a position where he can get up and say something gross about rape, and get a laugh for it, and. The, you know why they have laugh tracks on sitcoms? So people at home know when to laugh. So they know when the punchlines are, and that's it creates a different atmosphere. So I agree with you 100%. Caitlin Collins did as good of a job. She was under competing pressures. On the one hand, and we'll talk about this, but on the one hand, uh, CNN is trying needs ratings, and wants to show that it can cover Trump and can cover Republicans in a way that is, that is a departure from the previous strong anti-Trump bias on the network. So she, they want to do that. On the other hand, she has a life to go back to, right? She has to continue to be a working journalist and do this stuff. So she can't just let Trump defecate all over everything, everywhere, and just say, LOL, what what can you do? So there was no way that she was going to satisfy. So here's a little 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 rundown of what people said. My fa- my favorite just just for framing, the Daily Mail of London, AOC and Joy Behar lead backlash to Trump's town hall. I doubt it, Daily Mail of London. I highly doubt that Joy Behar led anything. And the people were like, I don't know what I think. Then I saw what Joy Behar said, and I knew at that moment where to go. But it, but if anybody was leading, and perhaps it was Oliver Darcy, CNN's own media critic, who probably out of a deep desire to not be, what's his name, Stelter, who did his, did his job with an eye patch on Darcy. Here's the lead of his review. It's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening. Fox News. Well, uh, what you're so what you're saying about Darcy is that Stelter was just the little B of the powers that be at CNN, and Darcy is having a well. He right. Well, he, the the Stelter would have found a way. The Stelter lead would have been like. Fox News unfairly attacked CNN for town hall and would have gotten to it, but it would have been super oblique. He wouldn't have started with that. But speaking of Fox News, they covered it. Everybody covered it. And they here's Fox News' headline. Brian Donalds, he's a congressman from Florida, has heated argument with CNN host after Trump town hall, quote, voters tired of y'all. So Fox brought people that they everybody's playing up the CNN failed part, but and on the right, certainly, but on the left, the attacks from Soledad O'Brien, Joy Behar, a bunch of other people, the anger at CNN. And I noted particularly that Soledad O'Brien was profanely attacking Peter Baker of the New York Times, who said basically what you said. What Peter Baker said was that Caitlin Collins had an impossible position. Now, you didn't say heroic, but he said heroic job of fact-checking Trump throughout the town hall. Oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. That is not even close to what I said. No, no. I said it was foolish of her to agree to do this. Yes, but she— That was silly. She, But it, he was pointing out the impossible position that she was in. And the, the attack, like, how dare you say that? But here's Oliver Darcy. While Collins is largely receiving praise for her relentless fact-checking of the former president, she was facing an impossible task. CNN and new network boss Chris Licht are facing a flurry, a fury, fury, fury. Oh, typo, of criticism both internally and externally over the event. How Licht and other CNN executives address the criticism in the coming days and weeks will be crucial. Will they defend what transpired at St. Ansem? Or, oh, please. They're going to go hide in their offices and not say a word. Or will they express some regret? For now, CNN is defending Yes, I, I totally think Chris Licht is going to come out today and say, we were wrong, and throw Caitlin Collins under the bus. David Chalian, the di- political director at CNN, was under pressure before the debate from NPR for talking about for why they're doing this in light of the E. Jean Carroll, that the pressure was greater, E. Jean Carroll. He is, here was David Chalian, that Trump is, quote, a unique candidate 
and that he's a former president and then said, obviously, he is under indictment in one case. He's under investigation in several other cases. And then there's the insurrection and how Donald Trump left office. Our job is to do what we do best, which is to ask him questions, follow up, hold him accountable for his words and actions. And in this case, convene this conversation that he's going to have directly with voters as well. So you could hear what the pressures were on Collins as she was going in, what the magic trick they expected her to be able to pull off that nobody was going to pull off. That was ridiculous. And then Puck News, Dylan Byers had this piece, oh, the Caitlin Collins era begins tonight because Chris Licht is going to put her at 9 p.m. And I don't know if we have in here womp womp. Um, I, ha- I wrote okay. womp womp. Okay, okay. Do you think that is not the case now? I don't know whether it's a womp womp. Okay, because I think this has no bearing on her future in a 9 p.m. hour because nobody could have pulled off this town hall. Do you think that she did? So the internal pressures that Darcy was talking about are real, right? Because the licks in a difficult... I I first want to say that you were right, that I said, let's... Let's see how Lick does. Let's see what happens. Let's give him time. And he's made some moves, and he fired Don Lemon and whatever. But I have to say, it's not looking great right now. It's it's looking bad. Do you think that from whatever perspective that what what's the calculus if you give Caitlin Collins the, a primetime slot now? Now her she's much more famous now, so maybe it's just maybe maybe any press is good press. But does this track with my my big question about the licked era at CNN was what new talent are you going to bring in to change this thing? He got rid of a lot of people, but mostly he's just moved deck chairs around. And the Caitlin thing is the same. She might do well at, at 9 p.m. I don't know. But he's brought in Gail King and Charles Barkley to do one show once a week. You know, that'll probably be good because Charles Barkley's good. But I don't think that. Caitlin Collins's failed moderation of a Trump town hall is going to have any bearing on whether she fails or succeeds in this 9 p.m. slot. And I don't think it will have much of a bearing on Chris Lick's tenure at CNN. He needs to find new blood to bring in there. He's all he has done is shuffled people around. It's kind of amazing. And I think that when you say like, oh, they're, you know, they're taking her from the morning and, and moving her to 9 p.m., will she succeed? The bar is so low because there's so little talent in that network. She is the biggest talent in that network. But that's not, again, that's not saying that much. The subhead on the puck piece, the Caitlin is Lick's answer at 9 p.m., the great conservative hope upon which his legacy will likely hang. That's also ridiculous. It like is ridiculous. she has dropped any pretension she ever had to being a conservative. Yeah, like I don't she, think that's what she's trying to do. Yeah, not at all. And you know, she spent a hot second at the Daily Caller before but going those to CNN. But those clips I saw were being circulated last night about oh, don't, the reason that she is so terrible said the Soledad O'Brien whatever people. Well, don't forget she once worked at the Daily Caller, and here's something she said about George Soros when she was 10 years old. So it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. What's the what's the baseline culture at CNN? What is it that Licht is confronting? Yeah, this, is, this is what he supposedly was going to eradicate. This, this is what he's trying to confront. So let's take a listen to what Jake Tapper had to say to Dick Durbin this week. We need her. Uh, it is a challenge in the Senate Judiciary Committee to do our business. For example. You raised the question of a subpoena, and I haven't reached any conclusion on that. But if we go down that path, we need a majority on the committee. Uh, right now, with her absence, it's a 10 to 10 committee, and the majority is not there. And a proxy vote doesn't count in this circumstance. So it's a complicated situation. I hope she does what's best for her and her family and the state of California and makes a decision soon as to whether she's coming back. I mean, all due respects are. You and your fellow Democrats were very ginger and very polite when it came to Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and not pushing her to retire uh, when you had a Democratic majority in the Senate. How'd that work out for you? How'd that work out for Roe v. Wade? (laughs) There he is talking to Illinois Senator Dick Durbin about Dick Durbin's culpability, I guess, in not euthanizing Dianne Feinstein. What in order to prevent the same disaster from happening that 
And also, how about this? And not shoving Ruth Bader Ginsburg off. off what were the they bench. supposed to do with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Were they supposed to to hunt her? Were they supposed to was were they supposed to hunt her with a trank dart and drag her off the Supreme Court? I mean, it's totally objective and right down the middle. And the sneering, well, just the like, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's it is it is Hannity esque. It is Hannity esque. But don't you think like it's kind of hard to tell what Jake Tapper thinks about the way <laughs> Dick Durbin is the way Dobbs should have been decided? Don't, don't you think? Who 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 would know? How yeah, how could any of us know? Oh, speaking of hard to read individuals, Tucker Carlson is he going to have a TV show on Twitter? Is that what's happening? I really don't know. Well, I I don't either. I mean, sources say. So sources say Tucker Carlson had a much better produced video that looked like he was working, like trying to sell, it was a timeshare or maybe a funeral home, but a a much better lit than his original one, professionally made a video of him standing in a cabin and talking about he's going to launch, that they're back and that they're going to be on Twitter. Um, He is involved in a legal dispute with Fox over the... $20 $20 million a year that Fox is supposed to pay him over the next two years. And in a weird twist, they want to pay him, it seems, but he doesn't want the money because it means that he can't do his own thing. It means he has to keep, keep his mouth shut. Right. He can't he can't go compete uh, against the network. So weird question, but can you upload a 45-minute a video onto Twitter? Elon Musk, I, w- I would go ahead. Lake Wash. Yes. And if you're, okay, and if you're so Elon producer Musk, Colin says yeah. that Elon Musk can permit you to do so. Sure. Okay. And Elon Musk could make Tucker Carlson his new the the new face of Twitter and do and do all of that stuff. And it might be worth a lot more to Elon Musk than twenty million dollars a year to have Carlson do that. Now, there would obviously be harms because there isn't a figure on the left, a similar figure on the left who would drive traffic that you could bring in to try to go for some kind of balance. But I mean, it'd be, if, if Elon Musk could fully rebrand Twitter as for the very online, right. I mean, maybe it would be something. I don't know. Do you see people sitting in front of a computer screen and watching 45 minutes or an hour of no, Tucker but I, on Twitter? No, I mean, you would lose the, the core audience of older dudes, right? But you would have to repurpose it so that it was shorter videos that you could watch on your phone, I guess. And it would, if you did them as cut down in that way, you know, I I have no idea. Yeah, I could see like two to five minute. Yeah, clip and segment, basically segment. Basically the, the intro of his show. Right. Um, the monologue. Have a rant and then have yeah. interviews yeah. and that they would be, that it wouldn't be one continuous thing, but that it would be chunks that they could do. Uh, and that would make sense, but I would again take the twenty million. I would take the forty million dollars for not working. I would. I think forty million dollars for not working. I would do it for half. I would not work for if half. If you of were that an money. heir to a frozen food fortune and didn't have to think about money, you would still take the money. I, I, I don't know how much money he had before, but I know that that again, if anybody would like to pay me half of that to not work for the next two years, I am. A hundred percent ready to do it. Ready to do it. Chris. Oh, Ronnie D. Ronnie D. Meatball. This is the, the emblematic of DeSantis's effort to find a good media footing. Doing an interview with Newsmax. Ron DeSantis uh, had this to say about Tucker Carlson. I wanted to ask you about Tucker Carlson too, if you if you care to comment on that. Tucker Carlson is a fantastic individual. I think his show was fantastic. I think it's terrible that he was uh, that he was fired. I think there's more to it. I don't really think it was about Tucker. I think it's about some of this other stuff that's going on with with, with Fox. Um, but you know, he was somebody that was willing to speak out and challenge the prevailing orthodoxies. And you know, and so he's hitting the right issues, and he's talented, and he's funny, and it was a great show. So I don't know if anybody has told Ron DeSantis this. But Fox has been his greatest ally <laughs> in his political success, and I'm sure that it did not go unnoticed uh, at 1211 Avenue of the Americas that DeSantis went on a competitor's network and accused Fox of chicanery and that whatever is going on at Fox, I, that, strikes, that strikes me as pennywise and pound foolish. Okay, let me push back on that. Okay. Tucker 
alone has proven he can be enormously helpful to political candidates. Right. He has also, not he, but legal filings have also made clear what he actually thinks of Trump. Right. Is it a bid for DeSantis to actually Does get in with Tucker and seek Tucker's help in elevating his candidacy? I think he has been there. I think that's what he's been trying to do. I'm just saying I wouldn't, if I were him, the vehicle I would use for that would not be to go on one of Fox's competitors that Fox is very, always very worried about and badmouth Fox on one of their competitors. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the most effective way for Fox to do that, especially when Donald Trump is rubbing Fox's nose in it all the time. Cause when we're recording this before the ratings come out, but when CNN beats Fox in the ratings with the Trump town hall, when Trump is threatening not to do the debate, with that Fox is hosting with Brett Baer and Shannon Bream, I think, I don't know, that the, this is not, there There's must be a lot of wagon circling going on at Fox. Chris, you put in this piece about Biden's oh, diet. Axi- Axios, <clears throat> Axios. This is the most Axios that has ever Axiosed. The food fight within, the food fight in the White House, colon, Biden's diet. So, again, this is a, not a new kind of story. George Bush, famously, George Bush the elder, famously didn't like to eat broccoli. Bill Clinton's constant struggles about, have you ever seen the Phil Hartman, Bill Clinton, McDonald sketch? No, I don't think so. We're sending food to Somalia, but it's not getting to the people who need it because it's being intercepted by warlords. <laughs> it's not it's not. It's other countries, too. Like, your McNugget is released from Great Britain to Somalia, intercepted by warlords. Coverage of what presidents eat and what presidents don't eat is a thing that happens. Uh, it, But here's the great thing about making it an Axios story. Because of their goofy prompt structure, why it matters The internal tug of war over Joe Biden's diet is just one of many in public private steps being taken by close aides and the first lady to keep the 80 old president healthy as he prepares for a run for a run for a second term state of play. What is the state of play with Joe Biden's diet, Axios? How is that? What's what's the state of play? You know What's funny about this is there probably are there have to be so many actual steps these people are taking to like yeah. prop the guy up and oh my conceal gosh. what's really going on. I he's sleeping in a vat of yeah. pasteurized pig I, fat yeah. and getting B12 shots in his toes during interviews. It, like, it's not the broccoli. As a teetotaler, he often drinks orange Gatorade. But here's my favorite. Zoom in. You can zoom in on Joe Biden's diet. What? How, how will we zoom in on it? Well, in September 2021, the president's sister Val came to the White House for a private dinner, and the first lady selected their entree, salmon in a pastry shell with a medley of vegetables. Quote, damn, she makes me eat this healthy stuff all the time, said the president, who's not a fan of salmon, according to Val's recounting of the dinner. I don't think salmon in a freaking pastry, pastry shell is so incredibly healthy. But that's your zoom in. That's how you zoomed in on that anecdote from I like Joe Biden Biden's sister's book. Biden works with a physical book. therapist. That's probably he's probably like uncreaking those rusty joints. Axios never change. Never change. Axios. Zoom in on this. Never change. What do we have here? All right, Eliana. Now zoom in on this. The Washington Post joins the chorus to say that it's not acceptable that Joe Biden does not do press conferences. What say you? I'm glad they noticed. Yeah. I mean, they kind of tiptoe around. You know, they say as he runs for a second term, he should be eager to show he could handle all aspects of the job. They kind of tiptoe around the obvious reason why he's not doing the press conferences, which is that he's senile. He obviously cannot handle all aspects of the job. And so it's like I give them like points for effort, but... They're clearly trying, still trying not to offend by saying what's plainly obvious. It is widely known, they say, that Mr. Biden is gaff prone and um, that news conferences yeah, are not, not why and that news conferences are not his forte. But as he runs also not why. for a second term, he should be eager to show he can handle all aspects of the job. Yeah. I like the alternate reality in which the Post is operating that Biden has not said, wait a minute. 
hold on a second, guys. I got to get out there more and mix it up with the press to show people that I can handle all aspects of the job. Good suggest. Thanks for helping, Washington Post. Okay, the other post, the New York Post, says that it is being unfairly treated by the Biden administration because it was not invited to a briefing. Slight. That's almost true. Okay. They they wanted to attend and they were told the White House could not accommodate their attendance while right. many of their colleagues were. So it was not like a by invitation thing. The White House press office barred the post, is what the yes. post says, from yes. attending President Biden's only daytime public event Monday as federal prosecutors near a decision on criminally charging first son Hunter Biden for tax fraud and other crimes. In a Monday email, however, the White House staff said, we are unable to accommodate your credential request to attend the investing in airline accountability remarks. I mean, they were just like overrun with people who wanted to attend this event and couldn't, I mean, no space. And the New York Post provided photographs of empty seats at the event to demonstrate that it was against them for their tough coverage of Hunter Biden. What do you say? So I made a bunch of calls about a couple of things. I made a bunch of calls about the LA Times reporter, Courtney Subramanian, who oh, yes. supposedly provided her question to the White House, and I made a bunch of calls about this. Okay. And I came down on these, like on the the former, the providing the question to the White House that that was not as bad as it looked. In calls I made to White House reporters, and of course we can't actually know what happened, but that essentially that that was like extremely good staff work by the White House and that she had, if you go look at her stories, she had been covering this topic quite a bit. And it's not crazy to guess that she would have asked a question about this. I found that the White House does ask reporters, what topics are you interested in asking the president about? Right. Um, So they ask topics. The pre-interview of the question. Yes. And and they do it for both press conferences and like bilateral with with Karine Jean-Pierre and bilaterals with the president. So nobody provides questions, but I thought, okay, like it's not crazy that they could have guessed she was going to, that that this topic would come up. On this, I do think this was retaliatory treatment of the post over the Hunter Biden laptop, which is at the center. Hunter Biden is down in court in Arkansas. The laptop is at the center of this child support case where he is trying to reduce his child support payments um, for this daughter that he doesn't acknowledge, the president doesn't acknowledge. They're trying to deny this daughter the Biden last name. And I do think that Joe Biden is just pissed off about the whole situation and about the New York Post bringing the laptop to light. And I do think this was retaliatory treatment. All right. What do you think? Probs. I don't know. I mean, certainly the no, nobody at the White House press office is looking for opportunities to give the New York Post access to extra stuff. So, yeah, I'm sure that's right. Now, speaking of Biden and the press, so there has been, looking at you, Nate Moore, there has been much discussion in the political press for several weeks around the question of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and is does he, is he a legitimate contender for the Democratic nomination? I would direct everybody to the Starwald on Politics note last week in which Nate Moore, NFM, wrote a piece breaking down the, re, the, the realities historically and from a polling perspective on what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is and pointed out that on the left and the right, there has been a lot of talk about, hey, how about this? I think, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think that people, including like Dave Weigel and others, have said there ought to be a debate uh, where Biden would have to face Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Well, you know who agrees with this? Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity agrees and had RFK Jr. on, and RFK Jr. had this to say. There are confessions of people who were directly involved in the plot, who were involved in the planning of the plot, uh, who were peripheral to the plot. Uh, there's a 60-year cover-up. Uh, they, you know, the Warren Commission was run by Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, who my uncle fired, and then insinuated himself onto the Warren Commission and essentially ran the Warren Commission and kept this evidence from the Warren Commissioners. First of all, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s voice makes Joe Biden sound like Pippi Longstocking. Holy Crocono, number one. Number two, this is a mistake that right-wing media makes. Sean Hannity giving Robert F. Kennedy Jr. a platform in which Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 
will say it was my father's first instinct that the CIA killed his brother and that there is overwhelming evidence that the president of the United States was assassinated by the CIA. Giving him this platform does not make it more likely that he will be a serious contender for the Democratic nomination. Instead, it sends a cue to Democrats to not be with be in support of this person. And as Nate Moore's piece pointed out, there are a lot of people who are registered Democrats who would never vote for a Democrat in a presidential election. They live in Kentucky. They live in West Virginia. They live in other states that still have a lot of sort of vestigial Democratic registration because they were part of the New Deal coalition in Appalachia and the South. And those people probably like that. Maybe I'll maybe I'll sum it up this way. If Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was to somehow run as a third party candidate, he would take more votes from Donald Trump than he would from Joe Biden. Chris, I need to speak up on Nate's behalf here. You have like a link to a random tweet here. We need to link Nate's. Piece. Well, I hope I certainly hope we will. You can certainly find it at the dispatch. Okay. Certainly find it at the dispatch. Quite so. I'm going to do it right now. He's got no sweater, but you're you're warming him up. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I wanted to include this next item simply because it is a it is a great context for the ongoing effort to delegitimize the Supreme Court, and we've talked about it here on several occasions. But here is CBS News covering Jill Biden hanging out with Justice Soto Sonia Mayor. That's, that is the worst pronunciation. I of said her it last wrong. Name that I've it, ever heard. Sotomayor, Sonia Sotomayor, Sonia Sotomayor. <laughs> that they were doing a charity event together, and Ted Frank pointed out. But Joe Biden's husband has several cases in front of the Supreme Court. Not as bad as a baby shower, comma, but still. And he goes on to say, "Look, I don't think that it's wrong for Joe Biden to go to a charity event with her, but let's be let's be real about." this kind of stuff let's be a little what's more a honest. conflict and what isn't yeah what's a conflict and what isn't harumph oh my gosh chris this is a section i could really skip because my level of interest in who wins pulitzer prizes is like well do we want to say i mean we can oh, we can man. we can abjure all we we can totally skip or you can let me say, say who this won. congrats to those who won pulitzers for coverage of ukraine yeah that is very commendable. Politico, you should have won for the Dobbs scoop. Yep. I agree with that. That was a great piece of substantive reporting. Yep. And they were proven right. Anybody else who won, who cares? These things don't matter anymore. No one cares. And the number of awards given out for race and justice and all this stuff has undermined the significance of the award i'm i'm just speaking for myself here obviously i Mm -hmm. realize i'm not speaking for anyone or you know anyone who cares but it has made these things so unimportant to me that i sleep through the whole things and and i I actually think that politico not getting it for what is obviously the biggest story of the past year like shows how asinine these awards are let's see who what did we get associated press one two for ukraine coverage who else won the time the Two Pulitzers for AL.com, Birmingham, Alabama, local source, the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, all won. So, yes, you're right. No one cares, but congratulations anyway. I sent this to Chris over the weekend from the Washington Post. Oh, no, don't skip skip trust in media. Don't skip trust in media. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Trust in media 2023. Now, let's start with an asterisk on this. Okay which is it's from YouGov, and I'm not a big fan of YouGov polling. But I think that, like many ungood polls, if it's consistent, it can still tell us things relative to itself. It can exist as a baseline. And the survey was of which outlets do most Americans trust and how does that differ from partisanship? You will not be surprised to hear, number one most trusted news outlet in America, according to this poll, the Weather Channel out there on the on the front lines, PBS and the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, AP, ABC, USA Today, CBS, Reuters, NBC, go down the list. In all of those cases, to varying degrees, Forbes is sort of at the 50-yard line, but in all of those cases, that the high ranking is driven mostly by Democrats, 
whereas Republicans have much less and in often case negative. You see an example like National Public Radio. Almost 60 percent of Democrats say it's a trusted source, whereas negative 20, it goes negative 20 the other way for Republicans, which tells you about that. But I want to point you particularly, and New York Times is similarly polarized, CNN similarly polarized, but I want to point you to the one that I found the most interesting, the National Review, the flagship conservative publication, the, the, the granddaddy of them all in conservative media, William F. Buckley's creation. And the National Review is deemed as credible by more Democrats than Republicans. The, de- the Democrats have a higher degree of trust in National Review than Republicans do. And the only outlet... Dispatch make this list? Because I bet that's true of the Dispatch. Dispatch, too, is not, Dispatch is not on this list. But the only outlets that Republicans trusted more than Democrats did were Newsmax, woof, the One America News, even the Washington Examiner, Democrats had more confidence in the Washington Examiner than Republicans did. Fox News, Republicans more than Democrats. The Federalist, sure. And Breitbart News. Infowars, slightly more. Both had <laughs> negative, but the Republicans had slightly more confidence than Democrats did. And I think the, the problem for right-of-center media is really clearly illuminated here, which is to say, if the premise of right-wing media is that the media sucks and that the news is biased and wrong, and the way that you get there is by reinforcing that all the time, you are inevitably undercutting your own existence, right? You are inevitably undercutting your own existence because the Republican electorate is convinced that you can't trust what you read and you can't trust what you hear and that the media is the enemy of the people. And then you can't, it's, it is then very hard to say, but not us, right? Except for us. Okay. Now we can finally talk about <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about, which was I'm perusing, you know, I'm like walking, looking at my phone over the weekend. This is from May 6th. It must've been Sunday. Or, oh, it was May 5th. The Washington post has this headline. Most Americans support anti-trans policies favored by GOP poll shows. Amazing. So I look and what are these? What are these these anti-trans policies? Like, what could these be? Clear majorities of Americans support restrictions affecting transgender children. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means no hormone therapies for children. Offering political jet fuel for Republicans in state legislatures and Congress who are pushing measures restricting curriculum, sports participation. Okay, yeah, no boys and girls sports and medical care. This is the best. Most Americans don't believe it's even possible to be a gender that differs from that assigned at birth. A 57% majority of adults said a person's gender is determined from the start with with 43% saying it can differ. I mean... These anti-trans These bigots. anti-trans policies, including These people bigots. who say that it is inappropriate for teachers to discuss trans identity in elementary schools. And that 77% of respondents said that from kindergarten to third grade, that is not a good time to talk about trans identity. And high school, 9 to 12, a majority of Americans say yes. And that understandably creeps up at fourth to fifth grade, sixth to eighth grade. And the thing that struck me about this The Post is very clearly auditioning for the GLAAD award after GLAAD denounced the New York Times for its transphobia. The Post is definitely leaning in on this stuff. The premise, the isolated premise of this work and the survey, the survey is says exactly what I would expect it to say is that most Americans think that gender is determined at birth. And it's not overwhelming. It's 5743. It's funny because remember the New York Times article I was so exercised about that's like the Republicans who went out and invented the trans issue. (laughs) And most Americans oppose discriminating against trans people. So most Americans think most Americans think that gender is a matter of biology and immutable and that most Americans think that trans people should not be discriminated against. Most Americans think that trans women and girls should not be allowed to compete in sports with other women and girls. But 
and they and they also think that it shouldn't be taught. The issue of trans shouldn't be brought up with small children in school. But people don't. It's not anti-trans. C- country full of bigots, Chris. It's not anti-trans. The people don't want dis- these people discriminated against. They don't. They're not saying it doesn't exist. And the 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 way that this is dealt with is really. I think very this, revealing. This is the epitome of media bias, yeah. which is to define anti-trans as the belief that sex and gender are inborn and and immutable, and the opposition to hormone therapy for children, or, uh, or that you shouldn't, <laughs> that it is not appropriate in kindergarten to through discuss third these grade, things with children. That that government yeah. school teachers should not talk about these things. And it's really cuckoo bananas. But kudos to the Washington Post. Now let me turn to a kudo. And the kudo is, I call it the wretch effect. We have been here. This is where I take a step back when we do kudos. This is my. Chris. Month month after month, we have been here to mock the Washington Post economic coverage in which they said, inflation is getting better. Inflation is easing. And then you read, you sift through it and you're like, oh, but it's still up. Inflation is still high, and it's higher than it was last year. So here, and I want to credit the Washington Post for a much more balanced take in the headline. Inflation eased further in April, true, compared with the year before, but prices are still increasing faster than normal. So it was an acknowledgement of the complexity of this and that it's not just a uniform good news thing. And I think that's a better, a, better, a, a more grown-up way to approach that. What is our next thing? Oh, Noah Rothman writing in the National Review. So uh, I like how you just come to a complete stop after you finish an item. Like, well, I'm waiting to see if you have a <laughs> jam on the brakes. Waiting to see if you have any <laughs> no, any I have ping no pong takes balls. on your kudos to the Washington Post. Noah Rothman writing in the National Review. So if you if you're a Republican, listen anyway. Cream and sugar with your cup of moral <laughs> defect, and Noah, who is such a good writer, goes after Esquire. Here's the lead. The subtext of Esquire magazine's admonition posed as a question, quote, is it time to quit coffee for good is not especially subtle. Quote, so ubiquitous is caffeine in our culture that it doesn't even register to people as a drug. The journalist John McDermott observed that no kind of stigma of any that no stigma of any kind attaches to treating coffee as a vehicle for the delivery of stimulants is a menace to those predisposed towards chemical dependencies. Is that lack of a social stigma, not the chemical dependency that Esquire presents to its readers as the problem. Step out of the office for a mid-afternoon cigarette and people might look at you askance. Get caught doing a bump of coke in the office bathroom as a midday pick-me-up and it's grounds for immediate termination. But slam a monster or a quad shot Americano at work and people will think you're a go-getter. And deservingly, deservingly, doth he roast this, no, no pun intended, this this trifle, this treacle from Esquire trying to moralize around caffeine. Just chill out. Let people drink coffee. People are, everybody's on their own journey. It's not society. It, people can enjoy your cup of coffee. Shoot the lights out. I'm, yeah, I'm you're having one right now. Though I have to drink a little, I'm, I have to step it back a little bit. You know why? Because it's interfering with my water consumption. And I need to drink, as a large format mammal, yeah, I assume Colin has a hydro flask the Chris, size of his canoe. Uh, yeah, I was. I have. Oh, and it is. It is a. It is a swell bottle. Two things you should know about Colin's swell. Three things you should know about Colin's swell bottle. Swell water bottle. Number one, it's an iridescent purple, like he bought it at a fish show. Number two, it's larger than the normal format swell bottle. And three, it has a nipple so that he can drink from it without <laughs> having to take the top off. So that like a hamster. In a cage, he can remain perfectly hydrated. I have never liked drinking milk. I've never liked drinking water. Right. I pretty much drink only coffee, Diet Coke, and alcohol. Yeah. Well, and I'm still here. You st- I I'm mean, still here. I don't buy this stuff. That's why you've got two kidneys. That's why you've got two kidneys. <laughs> yeah. So that you can use one up and then you've got a spare. Yeah. You're too young, but MTV News, Kurt Loder, MTV News, is is no more as Paramount reshuffles things, Showtime, which adolescent youths of the 1980s will remember mostly for what they showed after 10 p.m. Uh, when you were staying over at your friend's house, R.I.P. Red Shoe Diaries. But the MTV News 
going down. And have you ever heard of MTV News? Do you remember MTV News? Yeah, of course. Okay, so MTV Wait, News. I'm old. You're not old. MTV News was like, we're, it, it, it had a rock the vote energy. Yeah, yeah, of course. Very late 90s, like young people are going to get engaged. And well, he, let me tell you something. No, they will not. No, they will not. And inherently, and this, as we've watched, this is of a piece with Vice, BuzzFeed News, what else? There's been another recent closure of a non-news news. But anyway, the 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 collapse of BuzzFeed News and Vice and whatever, MTV News is of a piece of this. Younger consumers, and I say this about voting too, it's okay if you don't really care about the news when you're 22. As a matter of fact, if you're in college and you're watching the news a lot, and I say this with real love for any youthful wretches out there, it's okay if you're not a big news consumer when you're young. You have time in your life to do that later. And speaking of bias, what are all these what are all these youth-facing organizations going to do in their audience capture? In the same way that cable news succeeds with the right, because who are their viewers? They old. So what is something that's going to be aimed at younger viewers going to be? Liberal, because that's where you think the people are. So just, you know, skip it and the news... Is the news can just be the news. It's okay. All right. Before we get to the style section, although this kind of is the it's, style it's, section, it's, it's we have two style section items. It's on it's on the frontier. It, yes, it is. It's leading us in. Amy um, chose it's highly controversial. I was gonna say yeah. people had so many thoughts about this. I, I did not think it was that con- controversial. I thought it was actually newsworthy. Amy um, Chozik, who's a good writer. Her profile of the new Elizabeth Holmes known as Liz in the New York Times and she wrote it in the first person she we for uh, well that's her thing for listeners who viewers who remember our Sean McCreesh episode talking about how do you write a great profile one of the ways that profile writers do it is they immerse right they go into it they do it first person and they're describing their own experience in doing it and here's the lead Elizabeth Holmes Lends in with the other moms here in a bucket hat and sunglasses, her newborn strapped to her chest and swathed in a baby Yoda nursing blanket. Same. We walk past a family of caged orangutans. Same. And talk about how Ms. Holmes is preparing to go to prison for one of the most notorious cases of corporate fraud in recent history. In case you're wondering, Ms. Holmes speaks in a soft, slightly low, but totally unremarkable voice. No hint of the throaty contralto she used while running her defunct blood testing startup, Theranos. What did you think? I thought it was interesting because it told us more, uh, told us a little bit more about her in that this was all an act. Yeah, there's a wonderful picture that came with it. Looks Um, like it was generated by AI. The photograph (laughs) of her and her partner and their children on the beach looks like you asked AI to generate a TV show set in Southern California, and it's really funny. It confirmed that everything she did in the persona of the CEO of of Theranos was an act, the voice, the outfits, all of that. And and then she she quotes some of her friends talking to her who say that as much as they like her, they're warning Chozik not to believe anything she says. I didn't, I, I thought it was harmless and sort of interesting. She is like the biggest fraudster of our time, and I, I, I didn't see what was so morally or ethically problematic about it. What did you think? Uh, here's another passage. In person, Ms. Holmes is engaging, but she is also somewhat socially stunted. It's as if Rip Van Winkle fell asleep in his early 20s in a startup and woke up a 32-year-old at Burning Man. That's because the 14 years Ms. Holmes led Theranos, she didn't do any of the normal things 20-somethings do, according to her friends and family. This is the the criticism of the 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 more nuanced or the more fair-minded criticism of the piece is that she is rehabilitating the image of a criminal and some even criticized for that because she is white that there is there's is a racial overlay here because where is Chozik doing this for you know black defendants in different cases? And of course, I think that is really unfair because this is celebrity journalism, right? This isn't criminal justice journalism. This is a really long piece. It is a way too long piece. I didn't I didn't think this rehabilitated her. I thought this did further damage to she's an untrustworthy phony. Yes. I think that's correct. 
So I say fine, fine to do, and an interesting read, though. Again, like I said of, I, like I say of most movies, too long, could have been shorter. Trim it down, but that's, that's just me. All right, Chris. Now, the it's style that section. Time. That's it's that right. time. We have the Washington Post piece called, with the headline, The Rich Don't Dress Like You Think They Do. By Rachel Tashjian. Tashjian? Tashjian. Tashjian. However it is, Miss Tashjian, we apologize. Subhead, the quiet luxury trend dissects the wardrobes of Succession and Gwyneth Paltrow, but the truly wealthy have much more complicated codes of style. What'd you think? I liked it. I thought it was amusing that it, it basically the the upshot of it is that Kendall Roy has become a style icon and the costume designer for Succession says we weren't trying to make him a fashion icon. We're dressing him in costume and the idea is that he's like a tryhard and yes. he's trying to inhabit this world, but that's not how people took it. And I thought that was amusing. Maggie I, Bullock, and I like that a lot. Author of the new J. Crew history, Kingdom of Prep get a life, describes how students at Ivy League universities in the early and mid-20th century, the era from which J. Crew took inspiration, would wear their most worn-in clothes as a point of pride. Quote, it was all about how slouchy it was and how broken in it was, and you didn't want it to look new, and you didn't want it to look like you tried too hard, she says. They could afford to dress that way because it wasn't going to knock them off their social platforms or their rung of the ladder. They could almost afford to flagrantly play with their presentation. Here's the post. Someone who wasn't white or rich, in other words, had to look presentable or had to try a classist reality that is also percolating in the quiet luxury discourse. So I will caution you, and I would say that your luxury is quiet. I would Congratulations on, on having a quiet luxury. I did like them pointing out this shift from uh, the, like this idea of quiet luxury being no logos. Right. No logos. I, I do not like logos. No. And the scene in Succession where the girl is wearing a Burberry bag that has the logo, the logo all over it. And I think it's Tom says, you know, what's up with your giant capacious bag? I, I wish that this was true. I wish that this was true. I wish that rich people would do better about not being ostentatious in their wealth. I think one of the things that has really hurt American society is the loss of shame and the loss of not even shame, just dignity. Uh, and the fact that wealthy people are so ostentatious in their consumption, so conspicuous in their consumption and doing that it's tacky and it increases resentments and it increases feelings of social alienation. And I wish, I just wish it's okay to want to wear nice clothes. It's okay to look good. That's great. But let's be honest. For men, this is much, much easier because for men, the correct things to wear have not changed in, I don't know, a hundred and basically since the Gibot went out in the 1890s, we've had pretty much the same correct things to wear if you're only willing to pay attention. And I'm willing to bring the Gibot back. If anybody wants to bring the Gibot back, I thought Lincoln rocked it really well. Maybe you want me to do an ascot next week. We're on video. Yeah. So, so if you want, maybe next week I'll do a kerchief, an ascot of some kind instead of the bow tie. By the way, all this, right. this bow tie, way too big. I ordered the larger format bow tie, and I think it's just too large. Viewers, please weigh in. Please weigh please in. Please weigh in. On uh, the width Nate of my bow tie. Nate has just given us a time warning, so I think we should jump to our obsessions. All right. There you go. Um, Fine, Nate. It is that time, Chris, yep. for our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories we cannot get out of our heads. And Chris, I texted you over the weekend yes. this New York Times profile of the Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, of whom I'm not the biggest fan, but I just found he is, he is an entrepreneur from the Midwest, the child of Indian immigrants, who is a extraordinarily successful centimillionaire. He is in his mid-30s, a Harvard graduate, really, really smart guy, now a book author. Anyhow, 
This profile, again, I thought this is the epitome of media bias. It is sneering and condescending at every turn, as opposed to taking the guy seriously and trying to find out, like, wow, how how did this guy become? Well, this is the Times doing for Vivek Ramaswamy what Sean Hannity is doing for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., there are, well, it's slightly different by calling attention to him, right? Nastiest. In, the, in this nasty way, it will help Ramaswamy with the Republicans. Now, the knock on Ramaswamy among Republicans is that he's a stalking horse for Trump and that he is out there and that, what's his name? The guy from New Hampshire with the crew cut. Sununu? No, 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 no. Not that guy. I guess maybe they like a flat top in Ooh. New Hampshire. Corey Lewandowski. So there's a, a alle- oh yes yes so so the allegation the the scuttlebutt on the right about Ramaswamy is that he is not on the up and up and that he is running as a stalking horse for Trump, um, but this piece is will will endear him to many Republicans and I'm sure that for Ramaswamy much like the scene in which he was confronted by Don Lamont about how. Black people, it wasn't access to firearms that guaranteed uh, civil rights. Just like that, this will be a great benefit to Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Well, so there was an anecdote in this piece that the Times presents without any kind of comment that I thought was astonishing. And it was as follows. And they're talking about he founded a company, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, that he then sold called Royvent Sciences. Okay. And... The Times describes that essentially there are tons of drugs that are effective but aren't going to make enough profit that then the major drug companies abandon. And his his business picked up those drugs and brought them to market. And so on the board of that company were Democrats like Tom Daschle and Kathleen Sebelius and other other Democrats. And so the Times writes, part of the appeal, Mr. Daschle said, was Mr. Ramaswamy's commitment to bringing prescription drugs to market at affordable prices. I just assumed that because he was so interested in doing as much as he was to lower costs, social responsibility and corporate responsibility was part of his thinking, Mr. Daschle said. Then, after George Floyd's murder in 2020, Mr. Ramaswamy began publicly castigating corporations for speaking out on social issues like Black Lives Matter, voting rights, and ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing. Opinion columns in the Wall Street Journal were followed by appearances on Tucker Carlson's now-canceled Fox News show. I was rather shocked, said Dr. Berwick, who resigned from Royvent on January 12, 2021. Within days, Mr. Daschle and Ms. Sebelius quit. I assumed because he had a profitable company that was based on undercutting drug prices that he would also support the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was surprised, frankly. And also, these Democrats... They say this company was th- doing good things. Yeah. It was there to lower drug prices. And they stopped. couldn't abide well, I'll tell you what they political abide. differences yeah. what they couldn't with abide, the CEO. What they couldn't abide was being caught out in, and I say this advisedly, their racket of taking their former government service into lucrative board positions. Well, the lucrative board position, if it gets you, if it gets you canceled by the Black Lives Matter movement, Uh, then it's not worth the money. The juice is not worth the squeeze and you move on. But that to me was such a demonstration of their hypocrisy and intolerance that actually conservative principles can do exactly what these liberals claim to want to do. And they are completely intolerant. And anyway, this is just presented without comment in, in a profile that's supposed to reflect poorly on Ramaswamy and actually reflects so poorly on these Democrats who are trading in their government service for a buck. Just like <clears throat> a certain town hall that I can think of, a massive, a massive in-kind gift to Vivek Ramaswamy, congratulations. Maybe next week the post. Maybe next week the post will follow suit. Okay, here's my obsession, which is a perennial obsession of mine. Here's the headline from the New York Times: American road deaths show an alarming racial gap. What? What? Do you think maybe people are running down people of color on purpose? Let's dig in. <laughs> study published last year by Harvard and Boston University deepened our understanding of this phenomenon by controlling for the distance traveled by different racial groups driving, walking, or riding a bicycle. It found that black people were more than twice as likely for each mile walk to be struck and killed by a vehicle as white pedestrians. For black cyclists, the fatality risk per mile was 4.0 times as high as that for white cyclists. 
For Hispanic walkers and bikers, the death rates were 1.5 and 1.7 times as high as those for white Americans using the same modes of transportation. This is where it gets pretty amazing. As a society, we have been laying the blame for pedestrian traffic injuries on the victims ever since the 1920s when pro-car groups backed by the automobile industry coined the term jaywalking to suggest that pedestrians were at fault when hit by drivers. But an emphasis on individual responsibility for road safety doesn't seem to help, even when it's shifted back to drivers. In its most recent effort, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration gave driver training an effectiveness rating of one star out of five as a strategy to increase pedestrian safety. So, Eliana, what will we do? What is the answer? The answer is clear Engineering solutions like speed humps, lane narrowing, better lighting, the installation of sidewalks, and complete street designs are far more effective at reducing pedestrian deaths. The ubiquity of speeding is not necessarily because people are bad drivers, no, but because the design of our roads, wide, straight, narrow stretches of asphalt, meant for high speeds above all else, encourages them to do so. So the way that we should, first of all, the premise is preposterous. The premise is preposterous because what would you find out? What's it, what would be another way to do this? Poor people. You could just control for economics instead of race, or you could look for economics and race. And I bet you you would find very similar things is that poor people die as pedestrians a lot more than rich people, and black people are poorer than white people as groups, and this creates this distortive effect. So there's that part, and then there's this part. The solution here is to reimagine the way that America lives. So all we have to do to deal with pedestrian, pedestrian deaths is reimagine America's whole transportation ethos in order to solve this problem and quit blaming the victims. Why are we blaming the victims? And I love this expression. They coined the term jaywalking. That's what, you know why it's called jaywalking? You know why it's called jaywalking? Because no. you're going the, you're, you're instead of making a, an L, you're making a J. You're going around. You're going. You're going around. Not, and jaywalking also includes going diagonally. But it's cutting the corner, right? You're you're cutting the corner, and it's dangerous, and you shouldn't do it. Okay. You should not do it in the city. You should not do it anywhere. Don't jaywalk. <laughs> I'm strongly anti-jaywalking. And if I can have one last bit of my harumph, I do it all the time. But if I can have one last bit of my harumph, if you're on a bicycle. You cannot both be a car and a pedestrian. And what bicyclists do in this infernal place where we live is they want to be cars when it suits them, and then they want to be pedestrians when it suits them. But we have given them lanes. We've given them whole, enormous lanes. We have reimagined the city. And I still, just to get here from home in a 10-minute drive each day, have to swerve and duck and dodge to avoid squashing bicyclists so just figure out what you are. Do you want to be a car or do you want to be a person? Quit trying to be both. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. Heck and yeah. we have such good reader mail this week. Robin Moore from Oxford, Mississippi writes, Hi, Eliana. I was racking my brain trying to think of the brand of self-tanner you use. I just tried some Neutrogena, and I swear I'm getting the orange Oopaloopa vibe. Yes, Neutrogena <laughs> is the worst. It's the worst one. Any suggestions? Yes, Robin, it is Tan Lux or Lux, L-U-X-E. You can get it at Sephora. Tan Lux. Tan Lux. Yes, we are happy for you to sponsor our podcast, Tan Lux. I use L-U-X-E. Pale Lux. Yes, and it's these little drops that you just mix into your moisturizer. Well, thanks, moisturizer. thanks, Robin Moore. Okay. And Robin, let me know how you like it, and we'll do a follow-up. Let me know if it turns you orange. Alan Irish of Washington, (laughs) D.C. Wow. But reading this article, and this is a deal for senior leaders, including Fortress Management. What is this about? Okay. Chris, you know, let me handle the mail. You handle the mail. Um, This note is from Alan Irish in Washington, D.C., Alan says, wow, reading this quickly, does this give Soros an already built platform or is this a nothing burger since he was already a stakeholder? And it's a link to an article about Soros Capital Management and Fortress, which is a hedge fund acquiring Vice Media out of bankruptcy. And Alan, um, I don't think this will become a Soros platform because he really does his politics not out of his fund, but out of nonprofits. And so I doubt you'll see I mean, 
it'll turn left wing probably because all the media is left wing and it already was. I doubt um, you'll see it at all. Soros has yes, yes. <laughs> More importantly, Soros has plenty of outlets for his activism that aren't funded out of his. Feel fund. free, feel free to ignore <laughs> vice for other reasons. And that brings us to Chris, your favorite time of the week. in which I am forced to say something nice, and boy, is that easy this week. But lead me by example. Father-son duo in Alabama wins Pulitzer, bucking headwinds in local news. And I know, yes, I know, I know. I stipulate feelings about the Pulitzer Prizes, but this is a very sweet story about Ramsey Archibald and his dad, John Archibald, and their work in Alabama. Uh, here's the lead, Benjamin Mullen. One of the best moments in John Archibald's life came in 2018 when he won a Pulitzer Prize for comments or for columns published by Alabama Media Group, the largest news publisher in the state. He topped that on Monday. Mr. Archibald won a second prize for local reporting as part of a team of journalists that included his son, Ramsey Archibald, investigating a municipal police force. I feel stunned, Mr. Archibald, 60 said in an interview as the win was announced. It's a great honor and to do it with your kid. I'm telling you that's gold. And it is gold, and that's really sweet. And it's local news, and it's it's families in the business. And I got to say, way to go, Archibalds. Okay, mine isn't sweet at all, but <laughs> but whoa! I got an alert on my phone this weekend, and my whole Sunday was ruined. The New York Times had the most amazing piece. Your Sunday was whatted. Ruined. It was ruined? It, well, it's like took up all my Sunday because I went on such, I didn't even have the Reddit app, but now I have it Is on my Minnesota phone. Is that Minnesota for ruined? Yeah. Yes, yeah. you've been ruined? Yes. Okay. It, inside the rise, inside the delirious rise of super fake handbags. Okay. I didn't even know this was a thing. And the subheadline is, can you tell the difference between a $10,000 Chanel bag and a $200 knockoff? Almost nobody can, and it's turning luxury fashion upside down. Oh. Now, this article comes replete with a slideshow that makes you guess which bag is the real and which do? is the fake. I bombed. I got them, like, half right. Really? I, you can't tell. You can't tell. So, basically, this chronicles the rise of factories in China that ape the production of luxury handbags, and they're a couple hundred bucks, and... These agents are all over Reddit and WhatsApp and all this stuff, and they procure these bags for for Americans from factories in China. Oh my gosh! Like the the storefronts and all this stuff, it's very hard to navigate. I've yeah. now done a ton of research on it, but what's amazing is that authenticators in the U.S. are on the record in this article saying. This is a huge problem. We actually cannot tell the difference. So will the these. FBI come and be coming to your home for copyright infringement? Lord, uh, I issues? hope that I'm like the biggest bust in history. I hope that my collection, <laughs> I hope I become a huge bust. But this is really, really cool. And and a parallel back to the, cute, the, the cool style story. section, which is if the way that you make things expensive is by putting a brand on them, that's pretty easily replicated if what makes them expensive is the brand and not the quality. Well, the interesting thing about this is that these people are able to replicate the quality of the leather and the stitching and all of this stuff because, Chris, a lot of this is quiet luxury. And these things, oh, they don't have brands on them. A lot of people think, don't have brand a lot of people think that this is a, a $10,000 blue blazer, but I got it for 300 <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have left for <laughs> the news about the news. Oh, that... A listener told me not to say all the time we have left. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com or write us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches for Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Six stars. Just search for Wretches.